One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to yet another week in the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Things couldn't be better, could they? So, here's a question for you. How was it for you? Are you feeling suitably refreshed? Did the weekend allow you to spread your wings and experience freedom once more? This morning we are still feeling refreshed from our Saturday show with Kevin O'Sullivan and a host of guests in a nearby pub to this very studio. The atmosphere was fantastic, the customers and punters all behaved themselves and all in all it was a very civilised day that generated millions for the economy and the business of hospitality and that really is what it's all about. Today we want to hear from you about what you got up to. I've already received reports that some parts of the country are still very far from recovery, very far from busy and very far from anything that you might term the old normal. We've all seen the pictures from Soho in central London on Saturday night and once more we appear to have morphed into a divided nation. Those who want to get out there and spend their hard-earned money in the bars and restaurants and those who still think it's all happening too fast. Predictably of course social media has lived up to its agenda of poison and hate. Middle class wannabe rich kids were picking on working people who were out enjoying themselves and ridiculing the way they looked. I saw one tweet uh, which was making fun of a guy who'd been out tarmac all night, basically saying this looks like everybody I expected who would go to the pub this weekend. Apparently, everyone who went out drinking is a thick racist. Where have we heard that before? We'll kick off this morning with Stuart Jackson, former Tory MP, to find out what he makes of it all. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be looking at the £1.5 billion for the arts and heritage sectors. Museums, music venues and of course theatres are going to be helped out and I think they're all very, very grateful. We'll be finding out who's getting it and what they're going to do with it. Plus, we'll be asking whether Kanye West can derail the US presidential election and we'll be popping over to our Spanish correspondent Rebecca Nunes for the latest on the local lockdowns in that part of the world. 0344 499 1000 and on homeschooling day today we are investigating what makes thunder and lightning happen and looking out uh, at the vista and the grey skies with lots of rolling clouds out there. I'm beginning to wonder whether we might have some thunder and lightning uh, before the end of the day. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was just discussing with Julia Hartley Brewer, there was a sense of kind of warmth a sense of fabulousness about the weekend, the sense of being with people that you haven't seen for a while, the sense that you could go out and enjoy yourself without fear or favour, the way that you could go to a pub and actually have somebody bring you a drink as opposed to you getting a drink in a pub and walking away and standing as far away as possible from the pub because you weren't allowed to hang about. 
This was, I say, the return of civilization to this country. All over the country, there are people who have basically gone to be Airbnbs. They've gone to hotels to spend the night. They've gone to have parties that they couldn't have for three months. And they've, by and large, behaved impeccably. Of course, there was a bit of uh, argy-bargy uh, in one or two places. There were a few people uh, who got a little bit tanked up and behaved ridiculously. But no more than happens on any regular Saturday night in any city in the land. And I think there is a terrible, terrible danger that part of the uh, population of this country seems to me to be so snobbish that they don't want people to enjoy themselves. They're forgetting that people are not just going out to the pubs and restaurants of this country in order to have a good time. They're also going out to the pubs and restaurants of this country to prop up the hospitality sector, which is the third biggest industry in this country. We need it. Uh, we rely on it. There are thousands of people employed by it. Let's get out there and spend some money, shall we? Let's talk to Stuart Jackson, former MP, of course, and former special advisor uh, to David Davis. Stuart, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Now, as ever, I find myself uh, sort of... so playing the trumpet and, and shooting out the message that here we are uh, supposedly enjoying ourselves, there are still some people out there who seem to think that it's all too soon and it's all too nasty and we shouldn't be doing it. Well, I think there's two types of people. One are the people who've got legitimate concerns because they've read the papers, they've religiously followed the sure, let, me, let me just stop you there. Sorry, man. It's a very, very bad line. There's some kind of strange tinny sound going on. I don't know if you've been bugged by Huawei or something, but we'll get you back on a slightly better line, which I'm sure we can do uh, very shortly. But let's talk uh, to some members of the public today as well. So I want to know where you went, what you saw, what you did. I think there's no doubt that the hospitality sector has been absolutely bursting at the seams to get this back going again. I think we've got him on a better line. Stuart, let's try again. Hi. So, Sorry about that. That sounds a lot better, yeah. It sounded like you were talking yeah. down a, a sort of piece of piping of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, downtown gritty urban Peterborough. Oh, there you go. Uh, okay. Yeah, Good. excellent. It's looking a bit less the 28 days after zombie apocalypse right. uh, type of place it used to look like during the lockdown. Uh, but the point is that uh, obviously a lot of people have taken to heart the sincere government uh, advice and they have been frightened by COVID. Mm. And obviously they're very reluctant to get out and about and mix with people, and they're worried about social distancing. But as you quite rightly say, although it's not the real world, there is a subgroup of people on Twitter who are these sort of woke, liberal, cosmopolitan types that sneer at working people. For them, you know, they might have a job where they don't have to get out and about. They can work from their home. They have a computer. And it's very easy for them to sneer at people who work using their hands, who perhaps aren't holders of degrees. Yeah. And I just think it's... It's kind of sad, though, isn't it? We didn't used to have a country like this. No, and I think, you know, to to begrudge a working man or woman uh, first beer in a pub for four months, I think it's a bit churlish and mean-spirited. Mm. As I say, it's it's a tiny minority of these uber-woke snowflakes. Yeah, it's a kind of London thing, it seems to me, yeah. as well, because you're happily uh, ensconced there in Peterborough, where I suspect there are not too many Guardian-reading wokists. Well, we put, the Guardian probably sells about four copies in uh, in Peterborough. And that's, presumably uh, that's all in the BBC <laughs> office, is it? Yeah, well, they closed the BBC. They've closed the BBC offices. Really? Thank God for that. Because they think it's less important to have decent regional radio uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, woke millennials uh, talking about diversity and racism on on BBC Sounds. But anyway, we can get into a bigger issue on that. Yes, yes. But I, I, I do think, actually, there was a coming together, a cohesive 
spirit yeah. of thank goodness this is over partly we can move forward you know i went out to dinner last night with a uh, neighbor and, and family and it was a bit weird because we had these plastic screens but you know yeah tell me about that so you had how, how was that set up you had plastic screens between you and what and the next table okay and and there were probably 12 15 of these plastic screens it was in a pizza parlor okay um one of the, the I think the best one in Peterborough, but but basically uh, it was it was a bit weird. Mm. But there is an expectation they'll take them down once once vaccine comes along, or there is yeah uh, a significant reduction in COVID. Right. Yeah. I mean, you see, I, I said this on Saturday. We did a show. Uh, you're probably aware from a pub down uh, not far away from the office here, around the back of Bermondsey Street. And um, you know, yes, people had to sit at tables. They had to give their names. They had to register to be there. Uh, they had to order their drinks from um, a waiter or a waitress who would then go to the bar and get them no going to the bar um there were screens in 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 places there were also tables outside it just felt much more like a normal sort of saturday afternoon um than 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 anything i've done before and you could see the pleasure in people's eyes and as i say more important than the actual enjoyment of the punters is that is the money that was being spent i mean i was told and i don't know i haven't seen the whole figure for the weekend but 200 million quid was apparently spent in pubs on saturday alone now that has got to be a great thing for the economy well, yeah, and, and I just also think it's good for the morale and mental health of people. You know, we are social animals, and to quarantine people for months on end wasn't good. Mm. Uh, it was necessary, of course. I think what's come out of, of um, COVID is a number of key issues which, which, which we didn't really address before, like social care, uh, like, uh, you know, the, the viability of high streets, vis-a-vis the internet and, and small shops and the help they get and, and just the idea of us being one nation working together to to really tackle a, a once-in-a-generation pandemic. I think all these things are are important but you know we we, we got through it I think uh, we're getting through it. People moan about the government but but you know the government hasn't got everything right but it only had two basic aims at the beginning to stop the NHS toppling over and to stop the economy imploding and I think broadly speaking it has succeeded in both endeavours. Yes exactly right and I mean I think the navigation of this particular crisis as you say hasn't always been the smoothest that it could be but there again you've got nothing really to compare it to. I can't point to any government in any part of the world uh, which would uh, you would say uh, be the gold standard of all of this because every single country even those that get quoted as having done a great job whether it's Sweden or Japan or South Korea or Germany they've all had their problems you know Germany's had to lock down again you've had parts of South Korea having to lock down again Sweden they're now saying has got one of the highest death rates in the world despite the fact that you know they didn't lock down and they supposedly saved their economy nobody's really sure about that so you know it's 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 very much I think we're all going to end up kind of in the same place but having come at it from different methods yeah if you look at the availability of PPE if you look at uh, testing apps and the response of Public Health England, if you look at the social care sector between how they interacted with acute hospital trusts, you know, we could have done things better. We could have had a much more local approach to data so that we could have, you know, locked down Bradford or Leicester earlier so that we didn't have to lock down the vast bulk of the south and west of England where there's negligible incidences of COVID. But obviously a lot of that is going to be in hindsight. And I think we will learn lessons. Um, 
Obviously, the government is going to put more money now, I think, into resilience and working with local authorities. And, you know, we, we, we have obviously lost a lot of people, but nowhere across the world, with the exception of one or two states, has got it absolutely right, because, as you say, it's completely unprecedented. Absolutely right. Now, we'll get another big statement from Rishi Sunak uh, this week on Wednesday. Um, lots of news this morning about the £1.5 billion being provided to the arts uh, and the heritage budgets of the museums of the country and the theatres. But I think more importantly, in a way, uh, is the front page of The Times today, stamp duty holiday to help rebuild the economy, because, you know, that's a proper stimulus, isn't it? Well, can I just reflect a little bit on the uh, the lovies getting sure. 1.5 billion? Because you know, ten minutes ago they were saying Boris was a fascist, uh, <laughs> leading a government of gammons and yeah. xenophobes, uh, and they hate the country. And funny enough, when the taxpayers' checkbook comes along, all these lovies are saying, "Well, we always said Boris was a liberal and committed <laughs> to the arts and all that." I mean, you know, they'll be back next week moaning about how awful the government is. But let's not be churlish. Uh, too churlish. Uh, it probably is good news because we all want to save. I mean, Peterborough's got a Lido, one of the few Lidos in the country. Well, oh, if we yeah. can get some money into uh, keeping the Lido going, a lot of regional towns have uh, much-loved regional theatre, concert halls. So I think, yeah, that's important. And we've also got, uh, for instance, a museum in Peterborough. If we can keep that going, yeah. it's, it's pretty important. But, yeah, generally speaking, I think... Everyone loves Rishi. He's got stratospheric uh, ratings now, but he hasn't yet had to make a really difficult decision. And I think the one coming down the track is inevitably the triple lock on pensions. Yeah. That will be the making of him, whether he's got the cojones, the, you know, the gumption to make that difficult decision, because he's going to make some good decisions and some give out some sweeteners like apprenticeships, more money for infrastructure, mm cutting VAT, cutting stamp duty. Everyone's going to love that. But the, the, the magic money tree is going to come, it's going to run out of fruit soon. And so therefore, he's going to have to make some big decisions on tax rises. And I think the one that's going to be most challenging for him and for the Conservative electorate is obviously the triple lock and pensions. Yes, absolutely right. And where do you think they can go in terms of tax rises? Because, of course, you know, there are those people in this country who have got very wealthy uh, over the last 10 years, you know, the sort of what they call the top 1%. Um, I would say the middle class have been really squeezed. And I would advise anyone uh, in the Tory party right now, if you're going to try and tax the middle classes who have already felt a little bit put upon, that would be a massive error. I totally agree. I do think that the behaviour of some of these digital giants like Google and Facebook, I mean, I was on the Public Accounts Committee eight years ago when we were looking into uh, tax avoidance schemes. And, you know, we had Starbucks, we had Amazon, we had Google. And I'm not certain we've moved, we, we've debated the issue of tax avoidance, but we've not moved very far in terms of putting legislation in place. And I think there is, as a result of COVID, there is a consensus across the globe now that these guys are not always a force for good. They do have an impact on retail in the high street uh, and that you need to look at their tax regime again. So I think, you know, if you coordinated between the EU, the United States and other parts of the world, it might be possible to look at a very significant uh, digital sales tax. But obviously that's 
something that's going to take time to, to kick in. No, exactly right. And as far as the uh, the Rishi Sunak sort of, you know, statement on Wednesday is concerned, I mean, um, he's finding money that nobody thought he could ever find. Um, are you worried at all that we are going to sort of um, hock ourselves into the future for so far and for so long um, that the economy will suffer as a result? I, I would say, and I have said up to now, that you know this is such a massive crisis that we sort of have to spend our way as, as, as a country and as a government out of it. Well, the core vote for the Conservative Party now, as you, you know, I mean, it's flipped round completely in a generation. The Conservative Party had a 15% poll lead amongst the least well-off people in this country. Uh, and the rich, or richer people, uh, back Labour to a greater extent... The point is that many of those red wall voters in the north of England are not economic satirites. They don't believe in austerity and a small state and tax cuts. They actually do believe in targeted infrastructure and public expenditure. So he's got to be very careful in treading that path between traditional Conservative voters and the new voters who've lent the vote, their votes to the party. Mm. Um, and that means he's, he's actually got to take a much more what I would call communitarian approach yeah. of, of living with hitherto difficult levels of debt. It is fortunate that interest rates are low and it is fortunate that we have, relatively speaking, low debt levels as we went into COVID. It's, it's quite ironic that the people that most complained about austerity inverted commas, are the ones now moaning or, or advocating for even more expenditure. You know, we wouldn't be able to spend more money on social care and the NHS mm. and infrastructure had we not made tough decisions between 2010 and 2015 yeah. um, to, to, to rein back the level of debt. And what are you making of some of the noises coming out of places like Scotland, where Nicola Sturgeon uh, has to be a sort of constant thorn in the side of Boris Johnson, castigating him one minute and then doing exactly what he's doing a week later? Well, if you're a Scottish voter, it's very easy to say, well, she's doing a good job, she's on the telly a lot, she's sticking it to <laughs> Boris Johnson, right. blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to hard cash, you know, this idea that they can leave the United Kingdom, join uh, the European Union, and, and they can pay for that, is for the birds. I mean, I just don't believe that the Scots are foolish enough to vote for independence uh, and all the financial hardship and difficulties that will bring uh, i just think ultimately bring it on if they want another uh, referendum it, it won't be soon but maybe in the next five years i think it will have the same result oh I, I don't doubt that at all there are plenty of people in scotland who don't want to have independence partly and because of the way that they can see how things have been turning out in the last few weeks because i mean scotland for example they want their cake and eat it, don't they? I mean, they're getting 97 million, I think, out of this 1.5 billion, uh, which is coming our way to, to rescue the arts and, and, and various theatres and music venues and all of that. They're not complaining about that, but they'll find some reason to complain about the fact that they haven't got money for something else. Well, I, I did chuckle about those sort of numpties, those sort of cut price Mel Gibsons that were on the border at Berwick <laughs> saying, stay out of Scotland. Stay out of the, Scotland. With their, their salt tie. They don't say that when we're spending. £500 per capita more in Scotland on public expenditure than my constituents when I was an MP in Peterborough. Mm. They're quite happy to to let English people come uh, for tourism and leisure and bring their checkbooks from the English taxpayer. So I think there's a there's a disjointed position there between the voters who who are quite canny and they know that essentially independence is not a viable option and the slightly North Korean style hero worship of St. Nicola 
uh, in Hollywood, which is is all a bit weird. It is. But, you know, it's not. I don't think it's going to happen. And I think I think it's a bit childish to be constantly second guessing Boris Johnson to try and get one up on him. But people can see through it; they're not stupid. No, I think you're absolutely right, Stuart. Great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed, Stuart Jackson, there, former Conservative MP, former Special Advisor to David Davis, of course. Mid morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here uh, on Talk Radio. Big uh, pictures all over the front pages this morning. Johnson pledges 1.5 billion lifeline to keep the UK arts sector afloat. Uh, is of course the front page of The Guardian. Uh, and lots and lots of people who would otherwise be very critical of the government, now very happy, very relieved to see uh, that finally the theatre business has been given some helping hands. And also, of course, music venues as well uh, and museums. So let's find out now precisely where this money is actually going, 1.57 billion of it with Alistair Smith, editor at The Stage. Alistair, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, there is some detail around this amount of money. I guess we might get more from uh, Rishi Sunak on Wednesday specifically, but what's your understanding of how it kind of breaks down as far as, um, you know, theatres, music venues? I don't know if nightclubs are going to see any of this money. Uh, well, the answer is there, there isn't really uh, any kind of a breakdown in terms of how it's divvied up among the sectors at the moment. So, We've got uh, a, a big uh, and, and seemingly very, very generous um, uh, sort of top line figure. Um, we know that of that, about 800 million is in grants. Um, there's some that's earmarked for national institutions and there's a package of loans. There's a certain amount that goes to Scotland, a certain amount that goes to Wales and a certain amount that goes to Northern Ireland. But beyond that, we don't know how much of this is for theatres, the cinemas, uh, how much of it's for, for example, the West End, how much of it's for independent theatres. Uh, there are a lot of details still uh, sort of to be ironed out. Yes, indeed. But I mean, as far as the actual um, lifeline uh, is concerned, I mean, obviously lots of people in the theatre business started making noises about this a few weeks ago. Cameron McIntosh announced that he was going to have to lay off a third of his staff. Um, has it come a bit too late for some companies? Uh, undoubtedly it will have done for some um i think there's an element of better late than never obviously uh, but we have seen some theaters already go into administration um, what isn't clear I, I think at the moment and i'd like some more clarity on is whether this is going to be joined with a plan for reopening theaters uh, because there's a big difference in what is a large amount of money combined with a sensible plan for safely reopening theatres in the near future and another plan which says here's a lot of money but we expect you to stay closed for a long period of time yes and i think if it's the latter i suspect that we will still see a large number of redundancies um and potentially more more theatres going into administration because i don't think as big a sum as this is it will be enough to uh, to keep everyone alive for a prolonged yeah. period of time. Well, that is the trouble, isn't it? Because a bit like hospitality, this is a business which is seen by different people in different ways, you know, because I've already seen some people going, why are we giving all this money to the lovies? Well, partly because it's a massive business, which one, employs a lot of people, but also attracts a very large number of tourists to this country, particularly to, to London itself, because I've known uh, quite a few restaurateurs who were saying, basically, we are not going to open up until the tourists come back in central London, because there's not enough business for us to open the restaurants yeah you're absolutely right i mean west end theater especially is a huge driver of business to other parts of the hospitality sector so yeah. whether that's hotels or restaurants um but yes it's a major driver of tourism 
Um, and, you know, we're talking about uh, more than £7 billion a year that the performing arts adds to the nation's GDP. So it's a major, major business. So mm. this is this is an investment rather than a bailout. I think the government, uh, as generous as the package is, you know, it's a sensible package as well because they see that there will be returns and that the arts can be part of, uh, you know, of the nation bouncing back, both both culturally but from a business sense. Yeah, exactly right. And are you encouraged or would the theatres be encouraged by the fact that cinemas are apparently opening, which I must admit I found to be a bit of a puzzling one over the weekend because it's not the first thing you would think of opening, um, particularly given the, what the rules are going to be, that apparently if you sit inside a cinema, they have to clear 12 seats around you. Um, but is there is there a plan being worked on whereby somehow you know, theatres could put productions on with a fewer number of people in the theatre? There, there are absolutely discussions going on. Um, I think there still needs to be quite a lot more clarity around uh, around what the health officials specifically are concerned about when it comes to theatres. Because as you say, it, it, it seems odd that, that cinemas are able to reopen, that people are able to sit on airplanes in close proximity mm. to other people. Um, but that theatres, the advice is still that they can't open. Yeah. So there is a vague, uh, what has been called roadmap to reopening, but there are no dates attached to that yet. Okay. Um, and, and I think what what the industry really needs now uh, is some more clarity around that and the, and the health guidelines, so that it can work on sensible responses to, to mitigating any of the concerns that the health officials have. Sure. And what, and what can you tell us about music venues? Because obviously there are, there are so many uh, wide-ranging different sizes of venues, uh, very small places to, to, to reasonably large places like the O2. I mean, how is that money going to be going? Uh, I, I'm going to be uh, completely frank. Live music is not my area of ex- expertise, um, but I would suspect that they face uh, similar similar uh, you know concerns and worries as theatre. I mean, my guess is, again, not my area of expertise, but my guess is that it could be even more problematic for them because unlike theatres where you tend to have set seats that are facing in a single Mm. direction, obviously gigs, you have large numbers of people potentially packed into um, smaller areas and and it's it's uncontrolled in terms of the way that people are are, are seated. So I I would have thought that it's probably even more problematic for for gig venues. Yeah, I just wonder, I suppose, inevitably, as we move through the year, um, that the government starts to relax the distancing to some extent. I mean, we've already heard them saying, for example, that in September, they don't expect to have social distancing inside individual classrooms at school. Uh, And I'm not quite sure why they think that's okay. But I I guess the theatre industry is hoping that um, over the course of the next couple of months, maybe, um, they will relax things to the point where, you know, you can maybe have people in every other seat or something, which might work. I think so. I mean, reduced capacities are difficult in theatres because theatre is very expensive to put on or can be very expensive to put on. So most of the capacities that have been spoken about up to this point have been, you know, reducing, uh, reducing the capacity to about 20 to 30 percent, which just was not economically viable. So it would need to be relaxed sufficiently that you could get up to probably in excess of sort of 70%, I would have thought, for, for most theatres to look to reopen right. um, in any way that was economically viable. So uh, there are people on a, on a small scale or on individual basis who've got plans for uh, for socially distanced performances in the autumn. So I know that the English National Opera has announced plans for social distancing um, at the Coliseum. Um, and I think uh, I think that's, that looks at sort of 60% capacity or something like that. 
Right. So they, they feel they can do that if they reduce the number of performers and, and, and reduce the orchestra and save some money that way. Mm. I think it will be difficult for most organisations. Yes. And I suppose as well, people have it in their heads that, you know, you're dealing with multi-millionaire sort of impresarios and stars and of stage and screen and people like, you know, Kevin Spacey, who, who, who used to run uh, the old Vic for a while. And, you know, these people don't need our money. But in the end, like, again, hospitality, you're talking about basically mostly ordinary working people who work in theatres and who might be on the stage, uh, but they're not necessarily employed. Some of them presumably can't even get furloughed because they're self-employed. Yeah, about 70% of the performing arts is freelance mm. and a lot of them are falling through the gaps at the moment. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the vast majority of people working in the se- se- sector are not very well off. You know, we're, we're talking about people earning um, relatively low sums of money and doing it for the love of it. Um, more than uh, more than more than the money, and uh, I think you know the, the people that you've spoken about are a tiny, tiny percentage of the industry that the public maybe sees more often, and therefore has a perception that that's what um, that's what the industry is like. But the vast, vast majority are you know work jobbing actors or jobbing theatre technicians or or people working in finance or marketers or you know we're talking about a huge range of different people, n- none of whom are really earning significant sums of money or very few of whom are earning significant sums of money. And the freelancers, especially at the moment, are really, really struggling. No, of course. Alistair, thanks very much indeed. Alistair Smith, the editor of Stage, uh, which is, of course, a trade publication for theatre and the performing arts. £1.57 billion pounds, uh, coming their way, uh, which has got to be uh, a plaster, really, more than it is a solution. Uh, but it's very welcome. Lots and lots of uh, people in the theatre business are saying that they are, they've got great a sense of relief now that they are going to be able to carry on for a while longer but also music venues uh, are going to be rescued by this as well we'll talk tomorrow uh, to Donald McLeod uh, our friend from Scotland who of course runs music venues live music is very much the life and soul of an awful lot of cities uh, in this country and whether they can ever reopen in a safe manner during this pandemic uh, is the question but certainly the money has got to help them hasn't it 0344 499 1000 you might be one of those people sitting there listening to this thinking hang on a minute why are we uh, propping up museums why are we propping up the theatre it's an elitist uh, thing that people do well it's not actually because again don't forget there are lots of ordinary people who work in theatres there are lots of people uh, who work in ticket agencies there are lots of people who work uh, in the box office there are lots of people who are stagehands people who do the lighting people who do all manner of things transporting things truck drivers you know they're all supported by the arts and so you mustn't forget that this is this is just about you know stars of stage and screen it's about thousands of people and it's also about attracting tourism back to the cities as well because without the tourists there will never be a recovery and it's as simple as that this is talk radio ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
Now, I'm delighted to say that yet another voice of common sense joins us now. Peter Hitchens for, I think, is it number 12 or 13? Peter, very good morning to you. Um, I'm not. I've, I've sort of run out of numbers. I'm not entirely sure, but certainly uh, people have been remarking on how um, uh, cordial our conversations now are, and how much I agree with you. <laughs> compared do, to... do, do, do you think we should put an end to this? Well, I think we might have to just throw a few sort of rocks at each other for a while, just to keep keep things interesting. But I was fascinated by your piece of the weekend, not least because of the very due diligence that you'd given, which is very rare in journalism these days. You actually uh, put some work in uh, and got some facts from the. Uh, Department of Health to discover precisely what was going on in Leicester. Tell us about the testing situation. Well, it, I, I asked a number of questions. The, the answers I got, I have to say, were in many cases quite confusing. Mm. They did eventually answer. And eventually, I was put, the Department of Health simply said, go and talk to Public Health England. It's almost always the case if you start asking any, uh, any official or state office what it is that they're doing. They refer you to somebody else. It's the first response to any question. But I, I, I thought I would ask, given the, the, the rise in the number of recorded infections in Leicester, whether there had been a, a substantial increase in the amount of testing. And I asked when were the t- testing stations uh, opened, and they came back with this answer, and, they, and it showed that of the eight testing stations which were then open at the time I asked my question, seven had been open since, I think, June the 18th. Yeah is precisely the period when the number of infections is supposed to have gone up so alarmingly. Now, I, it, it's been rightly pointed out that uh, the, the truth is, of course, we don't, the, the number of infections is not in any way influenced uh, by the amount of testing that we do. Uh, but what you can do is influence the number of infections which is recorded. And it did strike me that an eightfold increase in the number of testing stations was pretty likely to, to produce a larger number of detected infections. And what the question that nobody asks in any of these matters is this, what does it mean when you say infection? Does mm. it mean the person is, is, is flat on his back in intensive care, uh, desperately close to death? Or does it mean that, the, that a, a test, which, by the way, is notorious for its inaccuracy, has found that that person might be suffering from COVID-19, but he or she has no symptoms? And the latter is much more likely than the former. So what are we fussing about? Infection mm. sounds horrible, doesn't it? It sounds as if you yeah. pick up something really nasty and you're going to have to take to your bed and be, be surrounded by people sheeted in, in, in plastic and, and masks. But actually, it doesn't mean that at all. And it's, it's all part of the what I call the continuation of fear by mm. other means. Yes. Having frightened the, 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 the country stiff at the beginning, uh, the government now feels the danger that its power will drain away if it doesn't keep the fear yeah. up. So here, here come these infections and this constant uh, second wave, the, the second coming of the, of, of the COVID religion. Yeah, yeah uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, it never comes. No, I mean, I asked the question last week of a doctor and I said, how is it that they've come to this conclusion that, in, that the, 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 the spike in Leicester is happening? And he said to me, entirely erroneously, as it turns out, that this was the number of people admitted to hospital with COVID. So I said, well, that's fair enough, then. It means that more people are being uh, admitted to hospital. It turns out that wasn't true at all. And it is just as a result, as you say, of the tests. There is a slight increase in the number of people admitted. But what, again, does that mean? Uh, does that mean they've been admitted on emergency? Or does it mean that the, the, the health service, having actually rather little to do, 
has invited them to come into hospital for, for observation. We don't know is the answer to that. I, I don't know of any way of finding out. I did try so vaguely asking what it meant, but I, I, it was difficult mm. to formulate a question which could be could be could be answered, and I didn't get a clear answer on that. Right. Uh, and I, I myself, I had a, a, a slight um, a problem with with my hip last week, and I mm. went uh, to, to make sure it wasn't a dislocation. I went to accident emergency at a major London hospital. Okay. And it How was, was very it? Interesting, very interesting because I've been to A and E before, as I think most of us have. Yeah. And you you generally go through triage, and then there's perhaps a two and sometimes three hour wait before anything much happens. I was triaged and seen by a doctor within 15 minutes. Wow, that is good. Uh, the place with the place, no, the place is practically empty. They haven't got anything to do. Mm. The, uh, the, the this is this is the great unstated fact about the NHS at the moment. Almost all the normal patients have been frightened away, and even if they can be seen, there's not a lot of things they can't do. Mm. And, and we see this thing now that the panorama is running running tonight about the, the number of the, the potential number of people uh, who may die of cancer yeah. uh, because they've uh, they, they've failed to get the, the the detective work done to spot it early enough to to have it cured. As you know as well as I do, cancer is. Is something which, in many cases, can be effectively cured if it's caught early. But yes. thirty-five thousand deaths a year because of late di- late diagnosis and delayed access to life-saving treatment is what is being suggested by uh, by, by BBC's panel. Yeah, program. I mean, I'm this not a fan the sort of, of things going on. So, sure. So the hospitals, it may well be that somebody who presents with, a, with an infection and says, "Well, I feel a bit ropey," the hospitals say, "Right, we'll come in for observation." Why mm. would they? They, 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 they? It's not going to overload them. No, but we also still have this kind of endless uh, supply of, of numbers. I mean, funnily enough, 35, I'm not a fan of these projected numbers, but 35,000 is not a million miles away from the number of people who are supposed to have died of COVID. But we don't know that they died of COVID because we still haven't really registered what they died of. We never will know what they died of no. because, of course, they have, for the most part, been buried and cremated without, uh, without post-mortems, which would enable people to give, uh, and even, even those, by the way, are not totally reliable, enable people to give a much more accurate idea of what they had died of. Right. In, in, in many cases, I think they were simply designated as having suffered from COVID, whether any test had been made or not. It's a shocking thing. And Dr. John Lee is... Uh, has pointed out that the way in which it was recorded was shocking. And I, I think that when or if there is a proper inquiry into this, that will be one of the things that has to be looked into. But the trouble is, we will never know. Uh, we will, we will, we will never finding know. Out how, how many of those deaths were not, in fact, uh, really seriously to do with COVID at all. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, let's talk about masks, because I know it's a, it's a frequent sort of uh, visit, visitation for you to talk about. Um, I, for the first time uh, this week or in the past week, uh, went on public transport wearing a mask um, and found that not everybody on public transport is, in fact, wearing a mask. So um, you can kind of make some mockery of the idea that you're all supposed to wear masks because, of course, there's nobody um, out there enforcing it. Well, it depends. I mean, I, 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 I did observe in a tube station last week uh, the, at the entry just behind the ticket barriers, a line of British Transport Police refusing entry to the tube system, anybody who wasn't wearing one of these muzzles, uh, which is... Oh, really? Well, I've, heard, I've heard stories of people, I mean, many people have exemptions, and there was a list of exemptions uh, in, in the actual... Um, in, in, oh, I must, I must look at that. Who, what sort of people have exemptions then? Oh, if you feel severe distress, for instance, uh, about, <laughs> about wearing a muzzle, that that is uh, that is an exemption. Right. And uh, it, but people were saying that you can print out on the Transport for London site, you can print out an, a a notice or or, or, or card saying um, I am exempt from wearing a face covering. Right. Because uh, I'm feeling the, anxious. 
because I, the, the phrase is severe distress. Right, okay. I mean, it's uh, a that joke, is, that, isn't is, it? that, is the, that is the actual phrase in the statutory instrument. It is one of the exemptions. There are several others, mm. but that, 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 that is one of them. And, uh, but the thing, people who were, who were arguing that they were exempt, were, I have been told, were told by British Transport Police that, that, that they were ignoring that. But I, I think that it would be almost impossible uh, to police the entire... Yeah, well, I was on a bus, and I mean, I'm assuming that the bus drivers are not particularly interested in confronting individuals who they feel might react in a bad way if they tell them they can't get on the bus. So people My understanding of bus driving is, is, is it's hard enough already without you having to do that. I mean, they get a lot of insults, and a, a lot, of, and basically they stay out of it, and, and, and who can blame them? Yes, no, absolutely right. But, I mean, there is this sense, isn't there, that there is a kind of lawlessness going on, because there are those who adhere to the law, and those who don't. I mean, I, we, we did a show from a pub on Saturday, as, as I think we told you last week, uh, which went very well, and we missed you. We're sorry you didn't come. I'm so uh, sorry. It no, was very busy. No, listen, yeah, I know it was a busy day for you, but but the fact is, is that it was none of those things that people were distressed about. You know, people were sitting at tables, they weren't allowed up to the bar, but it wasn't, it didn't feel like a terribly bad situation. We were sitting out on a terrace, and there was a woman bringing us drinks, we were able to be uh, chatting reasonably convivially, sitting about a metre apart, you know, we were able to do a radio show with two people and a guest every, every Every, uh, every 15 minutes and it really felt quite nice to be in in a pub actually paying for drinks and sitting down in the pub talking to people oh quite so i went to a favorite restaurant on saturday evening and oh, they you? have made every effort to make it as like the normal experience as possible right. and in fact we very quickly forgot that there were any restrictions they were really trying and they were doing extremely well i think partly as a result yeah. the place was full and, and so you had so you enjoyed that experience oh very much yeah it was it was it, it was it was a huge uh, was a huge release from this ghastly atmosphere of misery that's are they, are they also taking yeah. names in restaurants as well well a lot of these things are you they they can and people can give them a lot of people don't understand these are merely guidelines yeah this isn't a legal, isn't a legal requirement right uh, and, it, it, and of course, there are very serious data protection issues with what happens to this information if, mm. if it's given, which is a strong deterrent for anyone to pursue it. I mean, there have been instances of where, where people have, have had information taken and uh, and, and they've then been improper. Right. Well, this is it. I mean, the fact that the very pubs... bad things happen. So, so a lot of them are frankly not bothering, and there is no. It, it's not a legal obligation. It's a guideline, as with so right. many of these things. And but people are, are bluffed. Into yeah, into but the- also, also, just because the guy behind the bar says, "Don't worry, we won't do anything with your information," it's not necessarily not much of an assurance, really, is it, that they're not going to do something with your information? But the other thing that I find slightly perplexing about all of it is, I was sitting out on this terrace, and I thought to myself, uh, and I asked the landlord, I said, "Look, if somebody comes into your pub downstairs." very far away from me, sits in a corner, very far away from everybody else, and it turns out later to have had COVID-19. According to the government, everyone who's been in the pub today, regardless of whether they were even there at the same time, is supposed to self-isolate for 14 days. It doesn't make any sense. Well, we can all see that, that regulations of this kind are, A, unenforceable, and, and B, almost certainly laughable. I, I think the number of, of people I- infected now with uh, COVID-19 is said to be one person in 2,200. What are your chances of running into one of those? Yeah. Especially given that they're quite likely, for the most part, to be over 80 years of, old, mm. of age. Yeah. I, I, there are undoubtedly uh, doughty people over 80 who do get out of the pub, and, and, and God bless them, but you don't see many of them. No, around, around where I come and probably from. most it's, of it's those. Just, it's just a, it's just an overstatement, as it has been from the beginning. It is a huge, gigantic overstatement 
of the risk. It certainly does seem to be now. I mean, I think you and I will still disagree about the beginnings of it and all of that, but but certainly now it seems ridiculous. And, and I was fascinated as well by another piece in your column this week about the story from the coffee shop owner um, yeah. who was spoken to by the police in the same way that Nigel Farage was spoken to by the police uh, because apparently Ed Davey complained about him coming back from America and not going into quarantine. I'd like, quite like to see Ed Davey going into quarantine for quite a long time. <laughs> you can think of a lot of people you you might like, but let's 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 not be vindictive. Hey, uh, let's, let's let's try and be believe in, in in freedom for all. As after all, it is it is a, it is our case. No, there is, uh, the police uh, where they where they did these sort of things. In some cases, it wasn't the police; it would be council officials. Yeah. But and one hears quite a lot of people trying to run an honest takeaway business, being bothered in this officious bureaucratic way but when the police do it and the person involved a year ago had his 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 shop burgled and trashed and they did nothing and reported uh, drug dealing activity in the park yeah. of his shop and they did nothing but the police turn up and give him a hard time for allowing somebody to have a cup of tea because it's raining inside yeah you do sense don't you that that, that authority has been turned away backwards it's not, no longer doing what we uh, elected it to do mm. what we pay our taxes for it to do it's doing something else that it wants to do yeah which is nothing to do with us no, exactly. And also, you know, there are so many exceptional situations, for example, that have been going on since the beginning of the lockdown. You know, we've all been going to supermarkets. We've all been walking quite close to one another in shops, you know, which have been allowed to stay open. So, so much of it seems contradictory to me. It is contradictory. And, I, and, and if, if you're really concerned about national health as well, the, 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 sh, the sh continued shutting of gyms and swimming pools is a, is a nonsense. Mm. Uh, that will do more damage to the health of the nation. Uh, than COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, depriving people of exercise is a disastrous thing. It is, exercise is, is the principal pillar of health. And if people can't have it, uh, then they will become ill and they will, uh, and they will age faster and they will become more of a burden on the health service. Mm. It's, a, it's a madness and it can't be justified. What, if you're going to let people go to pubs and restaurants, how can you possibly forbid them to go uh, to the gym yeah. or to the swimming pool? It, it is, it is but what do you make, Peter, though, of the people who would, you would think mostly be otherwise sensible? Uh, and I'm talking about commentators who appear on, on all sorts of uh, broadcast media, who write in newspapers, who seem completely opposite to you. Um, worried about this uh, lockdown being released too early, worried about people going out drinking like they were in Old Compton Street uh, on Saturday night, and who generally are very much for this kind of extension, if you like, of, of, um, of self-imprisonment. I've been trying to work out where the division lies. I mean, mm. It's not a left-right division. Right. Uh, it's not wholly an, an, an old and young division. I, I know of older people who are as, as, as overcome by panic. As, as many young people. Mm. Uh, I, I think it lies to some extent in character. I, I, I do think, I, I've been very fortunate in, in, in two ways. One, I was brought up in this country when it was still free, and mm. I'm used to being free, and I, therefore I feel very uh, hemmed in and, and angry when anyone attempts to take away any of the freedom that I regard as my birthright. Secondly, I've done a bit of traveling in the world, and I'm, I'm a lot more suspicious, I think, as a result of authority and of what I'm told than other people are. 
So that's my that's my reason for being in India. But I think most people, uh, particularly who've grown up in the television age, have grown up much more conformist mm. uh, than I did. And it, it, this is basically it's a conformist belief. Everyone thinks it, so every, everyone thinks it. And it, it, it's it's like the, the sort of nationalisation of the sense of humour that yeah. the television and the internet have done. Everybody laughs at the same jokes. Everybody thinks the same thing. Yeah. Everybody has the same opinion of of, of, of everything from, from, from Mars Bars to Margaret Thatcher. It's all the same. And, uh, and people are very uncomfortable about being outside it. I think it's part of it. Also, some people just don't don't have the antenna for danger. That mm. I still say, to me, that, that the moment this came, it felt like a sort of Sarajevo. Yeah. Something had happened you know, deep down in the structure of, of, of Western society, which meant that bad things were coming. And yeah. I felt it instinctively. Please not let's go careering down this slope like that. The, the, the way in which the Sarajevo assassination in 1914 snowballed into, in, into, into this terrible war. I feel this snowballing going all the time. None of these other things, the, 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 the taking the knee and all the rest of it, uh, the tearing down of statues, would have happened if it hadn't been for this. No. But how Brexit-related do you think it could be, though? Because there does seem to be a kind of um, Brexit attitude going on as well, where, you know, there was, a, there was an element being, uh, being spoken of at the weekend that the people who were going out drinking and enjoying themselves and, and sort of being careless with their health and everybody else's were the kind of thick people. There was this kind of sense that, you <laughs> yeah, know, well, the it... thick racists were back out drinking again. You know, they, best, they must be Brexit supporters. You know what I mean? It's, there's always that kind of background know, to but, it. But that is, that is the modern snobbery, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, that people, people love to look, look down on, on those, on those who, with whom they disagree. Mm. And also the, there is a, a large disenfranchised part of the population, which is still quite traditional and still likes going to pubs and things like this, which which other parts of the population don't really sympathise with. There's a, there, the class divisions in this country still exist, but they've shifted. And I think yeah. that's part of, but in political terms, I don't think it is. One, one of the interesting th- things about this is that it's pushed the whole European issue way out of people's yes. minds. And when it comes thumping back in a very big way, which it will do towards the end of the year, then I think we're going to be quite surprised. <laughs> yes, I think so. I mean, is. I wonder whether people have not just forgotten about it, but also because they feel that this is a bigger issue and this is more frightening, that actually Brexit doesn't look so frightening anymore. Maybe. Well, they may find that that's not so. It, when it's added on to the, the, the terrible economic problems, which we're, we, we are now beginning ever so slightly to experience, when it's added on to those, the possibility of of, uh, of our being treated as a third country and the the, the the motorways in Kent becoming gigantic lorry parks, when that happens, I think people are going to start thinking that it is quite important, hmm. which it is. Well, yeah. Uh, let me, uh, let uh, me finish is, up with... Is, I speak as someone who, who has, for many years, wanted us to leave, but not like this. Right. Let me finish up with the freebies that are being thrown at... Um, Covent Garden and surrounding environs in the theatre business, basically. Um, this is kind of admission by the government that this is not furlough money. This is basically rescue money, uh, not to reopen, uh, but to stay shut. Well, I think it's a bit much. People would be trolleyed out onto the onto the, the radio this morning saying how wonderful it is the government's done this. Uh. Well, it would be a lot more wonderful if the government hadn't shut down <laughs> in the first place, wouldn't it? Well, yes. And, and now to, 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 to put it, the government put its iron hand into all our pockets and extract 
millions and millions of pounds from our pockets to pay to keep theatres going mm. while they don't actually operate uh, because they shut them by mistake in a panic doesn't seem to me to be a, a, a particular subject well, of praise. As, some, as somebody pointed out, for heaven's sake, don't put a stage at the end of Old Compton Street on Saturday night because you're not allowed to do a show. But everybody who's there is the equivalent of about four theatres full. Well, yeah, and also don't don't uh, don't put a gym there either. Who <laughs> uh, could go to that or anything? It's, it, there is this, the whole thing has a has a, a, a mindless, ill thought out, panicky inconsistency, which which betokens its origins in the in the confused mind of one Alexander Johnson, mm. uh, possibly the most clueless person <laughs> ever to occupy the the office of prime minister and that's so your view on him has changed position so. it's worsened i i you know you you have to say yes a, a pleasant companion amusing all the rest of it but as a prime minister olympically useless <laughs> well that's a pretty pretty good note to end on i think peter thank you very much indeed uh, as ever delightful to talk to you peter hitchens uh, with his view uh, of the lockdown thus far uh, he doesn't seem to be uh, changing his mind i have to say i mean He's making perfect sense now, uh, and I'm agreeing with him about what's going on because it does seem to me uh, that we can open everything now, can't we? I mean, I said this when Boris announced that July the 4th was going to be the day. I said, that's it. The lockdown's over. Why can't we just open the theatres? Why can't we just open the gyms? Why can't we just open everything? Because it seems to me that that's where we are, isn't it? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, if you did go out and about at the weekends, as many of you have tweeted me and told me, uh, I think you'll find it was a rather pleasant experience for almost everybody. Uh, and I'm sure James Chiaverini is going to tell me that he uh, was heaving a huge sigh of relief uh, to be able to open up his restaurant again for the first time uh, in several months. James, very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Hi, good to see you again. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Good to see you were able to open. How did it all go? I mean, notwithstanding the 23 bozos who didn't show up, um, how, how was the rest of it? <laughs> Oh, it was magic. It was just magic. It was just so much fun. I mean, it was just the atmosphere was brilliant. Everybody was well behaved. The staff were on form. The customers loved it. It was just such a magical evening. Fantastic. That's very much how I felt Saturday after uh, being in the pub for a few hours. I thought it was great. And the atmosphere was terrific. It was just it was a very feel good kind of atmosphere. And, and the whole city, it seemed to me, was feeling good. It was, it was. And that's exactly what we need. We need to restore confidence to get the economy going. If we want to kickstart consumer spending, people have got to be happy to do it. And the only way they're going to do that is if they have a good time. Yeah, exactly right. So so tell us sort of how many covers you managed to get in and whether that was sufficient for you to kind of feel confident about the future. So uh, we've got two restaurants next door to each other in Kensington High Street, Portico and Pizzicotto. We've lost about 30% capacity on, on, on each restaurant. Um, at running at 70% capacity, it means we can break even. That's we not break bad, even is it? Money. No, I mean, to be honest with you, there is probably isn't going to be a, 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 a bricks and mortar business this year that's going to turn a profit. So we can kind of just, you know, take it easy, relax, and, you know, concentrate on doing what we do best and don't worry about not making any money. Right. It's quite but therapeutic, actually. Well, yeah, I suppose it's nice if you're that philosophical, but I guess for the people who were able to come in and work, your staff, they were making money because they were presumably getting paid and also getting a few tips, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're very happy to be back at work. Um, you know, they're over the moon. I mean, uh, three months of just sitting around twiddling our thumbs is no good for anybody, mm. even if you're up 80% or 100%. It's still just not the same, you know, and and it, this job is very much a vocation. I mean, you you know, it's long hours, it's tough physical labour. You know, you do it because you enjoy it, you know. 
Yeah, absolutely. And when we spoke, um, I think it was last week or the week before, when you were talking about opening up, you were the, you were one of the, the the sort of the crusaders here, I would say, James, because you told us here on this show you were opening up July the fourth, no matter what. And then, of course, the government and the prime minister uh, went along with you and said, right, you can all open up on July the fourth. What did you yeah. find that was different in terms of, um, you know, you you said to us that you were probably going to try and get visors for the for the waiters and waitresses rather than uh, rather than masks. Um, was was were there masks being worn at all? Uh, no masks, but all our staff has staff visors, myself included. Okay. Um, and we found that you know people there were some customers who want to see the visors, and the people who don't want to see the visors, they're not bothered by us wearing them. Right. So all our bases protect the staff protect the customers wear the visors with well, the restaurant operates a very simple one-way system for traffic mm. alcohol hand gel everywhere i mean it, it's it's very durable very easy to manage and it doesn't detract at all from the enjoyment of the experience now big question the next big question is have you got a table for four on the thursday uh i don't know <laughs> I need to check my All bookings. Right. But- I, mean, I don't mind which restaurant, you know, but if you can, I'd love to. I'd love to come and see. You. If not, it'll have to be next week, maybe. But um, but, but we'll be coming. We'll be coming soon. Have you got a limit on how many people per table? Uh, no, no, not in the slightest. I so, think, if it was, uh, so if you had, what if it was a table for six, you could do that. Yeah, yeah, we could put the, we could put tables together and so forth. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And did you find the, the the kitchen situation any different? I mean, how did you manage that? So we've. Um, you know, it's not that difficult. All the kitchen staff wear masks and face shields anyway. And back, you know, um, it's basically, you know, we just we almost bought pallets of the stuff. To be honest with you, um, it is. It, I mean, it's just got to be wary of 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 you know of of standing next to pe- people in close contact. But yeah. you know, apart from that, you can just manage it however you see best. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the that's the rule, isn't it? I mean, I said on Saturday that I did not object to the fact that you can't walk up to the bar and order a drink, that you need to have somebody bring it to you. It's more like a table service now in a pub than it was. You know, I don't know if you had the opportunity, you're probably working too hard to actually go out and try and see what other people are doing. Um, but, you know, I, I similarly, I would not object to being served by people wearing visors. I would not object to having a disposable menu. You know, I wouldn't object to having to use hand gel if I go to the, to the bathroom. You know, I don't mind any of that because I just want to get back to, to going out for dinner. Yeah, absolutely. And I think everybody thinks of it in exactly the same way that you do. Um, I think it's just a real common sense approach to it. And uh, I can't see any reason why we, we shouldn't be able to carry on like this, you know, um, in, until the until the regulations change. Right. But the most important is that people understand that um, that it's a more measured approach. And, and if table service leads in a pub leads to more continental style of easy drinking, then I think that's probably, you know, that's probably better for everybody. Sure. And how about outdoors? Have you got outdoor space as well or not really? We do. Yeah, we do. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm very pleased to see the government with their, with their planning and, and business bill, allowing us to spread out on either side of this space adjacent to our restaurant, as well as in front of it. Okay. So we can use the terrace now on, on, on both restaurants. That would be lovely. We can put up really nice hedgerows now to make sure that it's really nice. And um, and that's going to be valid, I think, until thirtieth of September, twenty twenty one. So oh, we've got. Good. A well, it's good. To, it's it's good to know that the that the councils are being cooperative as well, because I mean, uh, that's not always the case, is it? You can sometimes find that the old uh, uh, the old Jobsworths are quite happy to come around with their sticks and their uh, and their clipboards, telling you what you can and can't do, and where you can't do it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think the less I say about that, the better. Yeah, probably <laughs> wise. Yeah, probably wise. But we did have it. Funnily enough, I was at the pub that we went to on Saturday last week because it was a takeaway only sort of scenario. But as the weather was quite good, people were tending to sort of stand around quite close to the pub. And some guy from the council turned up and told uh, the landlord that everybody had to move away from the building. Um, because they were standing too close to it. And I just thought to myself, you know, mate, this is, you know, you're not changing anything here. You're just making people move literally five feet to the right. Why are you doing it? You know, just move on. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. But I mean, you know, I mean, our, our policy has always been, you know, just, just play it by the book. Right? Yeah, no, of course, absolutely. And I don't want to get you into any trouble by, by asking you these questions. But, <laughs> but so how far in advance are you taking bookings at the moment? Are you... Um, are people ringing up and saying we'd love to come in August? Can we make a booking? That kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, people, we're taking we're taking bookings basically as as if it was completely normal. Yeah. The only the only thing at the moment is that we're not open for lunch times. Right. Uh, there's no the offices aren't back yet really, and uh, and there's no walk-ins. I mean, this was the problem that I highlighted on the weekend with the no shows. Yeah. Is that there's no walk-ins to cover a an, a no show reservation you know that that table is lost for the evening yes and that's ridiculous isn't it because i mean it's been something that i know restaurateurs like yourself have, have talked about in the past whether you and i mean some restaurants do take credit cards off people when you make a reservation i've had that situation and i mean i maybe it does focus the mind a little bit more for people where you go well they've got my credit card so i better turn up yeah, I mean, the most important thing is that the restaurant has to provide a 100% refund right until the last minute right. because people are stuck in traffic, uh, children get sick, babysitters cancel, mm. and you, you shouldn't penalise a customer for that. So I think people, you know, it shouldn't be like you have to cancel only with 48 hours notice or something. It really is, should just be there just to safeguard people who book multiple places and then, you know, go to the pub after a couple of pints and then decide last minute which one they want to go to. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is the trouble, isn't it? But, I mean, uh, at the moment, you're having presumably light pubs to take people's details, are you, just in case there's an outbreak of some kind or other? We ask them. So what we basically say to the customers is we say, if you want to help out the government with their track and trace system, then, you know, you can leave us your details and we will store them for 21 days before basically destroying them safely. Um, the customer is under no obligation to do that. I understand that some customers do not want to give their details and that's entirely their prerogative. We ask them, and we make sure that it's incredible that it is voluntary, and it is by no means you know obliged by us. Right. Okay. Um, and so, as far as um, your kind of longevity is concerned, you're you're going to be open pretty much every day now until what Christmas? Yeah, absolutely. We're 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 back in the game. So I just want to open up as as quick as we can, and I want to get back to normal as quick as I can. Um, and and just uh, and just kind of put the last three months behind us. Yeah, sure. And what about around you? Because I drove back through uh, Greenwich on Sunday night, I guess, and I noticed a lot more restaurants open uh, than 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 of course they had been because they they hadn't been open at all. Is Kensington High Street quite busy now in terms of all the restaurants? No, very quiet. Is it? Um, uh, most most of it. I don't think the pub around the corner um, is a Fuller's. I don't think they've opened up yet. Uh, shops are very quiet still. I mean, the local waitrose is, you know, is always, you know, a few comings and goings. Mm. A lot of people who live in Kensington and Chelsea tend to have a second home in the countryside. A lot of people who own a second home just haven't come back to London. Right. To be honest, they've just got out of the of the of the smoke, as it were. 
Yeah, and, and it's public transport. That's the thing that people are really worried about. They don't like getting on public transport. Well, do you know, that's the other thing that I found last week because um, I was meeting some friends uh, in a pub and I thought, you know, because I drive into work in the mornings, I thought I'll take the car home and I'll come back in on the bus. And that was the first time I'd done that. First time I'd been on public transport really since mid-March, you know. Um, and obviously coming over to you, I'm thinking, do I get the tube, which is what I would normally do to come over there, or do I just jump in an Uber, or do I jump in a black cab? Um, you know, either way, it's not a very pleasant experience because you're having to wear a mask. Yeah, absolutely, it's not great. Um, you know, and that and that does put put some people off. So, you can, know, can I you mean, just come and get me or something, James? I mean, we. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have a shuttle bus service. <laughs> We're gonna we'll put like we'll put some sort of system in place. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? I think that that will put some people off, I suppose, and it tends. But luckily for you, there's a. There, I mean, you are a, a local restaurant in, in a way, aren't you? And so you you should have enough local clients who 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 love the food enough to keep you going. Yeah, ninety nine percent of all our customers are locals, and that's what makes the place so great. It's yeah. like a private club without being a private members club. In right. the sense that you, you rock up, you've got your usual table, you've got your usual fare, your usual bottle of wine. You're served by the same waiter every night. You're yeah. cooked by the same every night. You know, I'm there every night. You know, it's that level of comfort and consistency which is so in demand now mm. more than ever. Um, you know, and this is why the chains are going to struggle because if you've got a business model, stack them high, sell them cheap, and it just doesn't work in the current climate. No. You know, you need an experience-based economy right. you need that level of that that primal care for for your customers and yeah. that that to be genuine you know you can't fake it no it's a loyalty thing isn't it and also a lot of those big chains also kind of um, depend upon quite a high level of footfall and like you know they serve you once they never see you again kind of thing yeah yeah absolutely very much so and, and you know and they tend to be very hard on their suppliers as well they tend to be they don't pay on time um, you know they use their 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 clout to sort of leverage to leverage more um, you know more more cash flow. We don't do that. We can't do that. We're not interested in doing any of that kind of stuff. Uh, we're interested in just you know longevity. We take a thirty year view on everything. Yeah. My father took a thirty year view. My grandfather took a thirty year view. You know, and uh, and God willing, my kids will too. Yeah. And have you got anything uh, particularly um, on on point at the moment? You know, you do uh, a lot of game in your restaurant, depending on what's available. Yeah. Um, so, what do you got going on? So um, we will be. Uh, there's going to be some really nice wood pigeons coming in now when they come on the barley, which which me and my dad will be out, and my father will go, will go out and try and, and uh, you know just see what we can come back with that. Yeah. Uh, there's going to be we uh, we just gone into business with. Um, we're trying to basically buy much more British produce now. Mm. So with Brexit around the corner and with the forthcoming agriculture bill, we really, and with the, with the fact that farmers have had a torrid time of late, we're trying to move away from bringing things from continental Europe and just really backing British farming now. Right, so, good. Brilliant. Okay, well, listen, well, you and I shall have a little private uh, exchange um, and hopefully I might see you Thursday. But if not, uh, we'll make a date and uh, I'll be along soon. Mike, you're a good man. Let me know when you need the table. No worries, James. Thank you very much indeed. Nice to talk to you. James Chiaverini there from Il Portico, uh, which happens to be London's oldest family-run restaurant. Uh, a great place. Two restaurants, actually, one next to each other, uh, one slightly more upmarket than the other, uh, but very well worth a visit if you uh, like Italian food, which is what James provides in a very uh, nice atmosphere by the sounds of it. So uh, we shall be popping along there, hopefully uh, sooner rather than later. But we will take more of your calls on what was going on this weekend, of course, because I think an awful lot of people um, are still 
still a bit sort of uh, tentative about going out. They don't want to go to the pub, which is fine, you know, because, you know, I don't want to go to a pub which is crammed with people anyway. I don't think anybody does. Um, but certainly there are opportunities now to start to think that your life could return in some way to normal, to some form of normal. You know, because if you can go out for dinner, if you can go out to the pub, and I appreciate as well that there are a lot of people listening here, uh, you know, who may not have the money to do that because you might be struggling through um, a period of time where you haven't really had any work uh, and you so can't go out and spend loads of money. But don't forget that it's not just about people enjoying themselves it's also about people uh, who need to work in the hospitality business and there's thousands of people who work in restaurants who, who are working in restaurant kitchens uh, who are maybe table uh, waiting staff uh, people who are uh, concierges uh, in hotels people who uh, have to work in pubs I mean all manner of people doing jobs which they can't do from home you know you can't serve somebody two pints of Guinness while you're staying at home you have to go to work to do that. And some people, I think, in the middle classes of this country don't quite seem to understand that. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Paul has tweeted, he says, can we just remember that every time that somebody pleads to the government for money, uh, they're getting it from us? Well, up to a point, I'd have to say, uh, because it may well be that if all of this money is borrowed and if all of this money is never paid back, then they won't ever have to come to us to ask us to give them the money back so that they can pay it back to whoever they borrowed it from, if you see what I mean. Uh, but that could be another one for the old homeschooling scenario, because that's where we are now. Uh, it is just after the news at 12.30 and every single day uh, we do homeschooling at this time. If you've still got your kids at home and you are still homeschooling them, um, even if you have lost the will to live, uh, this is where you actually get a little bit of a breather, a little bit of a break. So gather your children around the radio, uh, gather them around the YouTube uh, TV station as well, because a lot of people are now watching us as well as listening to us. We're going to talk to Claire Nazir, a meteorologist and broadcaster at Channel 5, because she's going to tell us all about thunder and lightning. Claire, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Hi there, Mike. How are you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks. This is a great subject for me, this, because it's one of those things that everybody thinks they know about, but they don't really know about. Because, you know, we've all been told that thing where if you count between the thunder and the lightning, you can tell how many miles away it is. And then you wait for it to come down on top of the house and you go, oh, it's right above us now. Um, so tell us, how does thunder happen, first of all? Well, it's uh, first of all, it is the most amazing subject weather because you can look outside and you can learn so much just by looking at the shapes of clouds. So for thunder and lightning to happen, first of all, uh, the formation of the cloud has to exist. And the clouds are called cumulonimbus clouds. That's mm. Latin. Cumulo means heat and nimbus means rain bearing. Okay. And these clouds start off as cumulus clouds. So they look like cauliflowers in the sky. And then they develop further and further and create these amazing anvil shapes at the top of the cloud, which spread out. So that's when you know there's a thunderstorm close by. Right. So first of all, it's the shape of the cloud and they look like anvils. So they bubble up and then they spread out the top of what we call the weather making layer of the atmosphere, the troposphere. OK, that's first. That's the first point. Secondly, the ingredients to create a thunderstorm has to be a huge amount of moisture and heat at low levels. And the air has to be unstable, which means it has to naturally rise up into the upper atmosphere where it's cooler. So warm air can rise and it then gets cooled by the environment it hits. And that's when we see the formation of these clouds through condensation. So we get tiny little cloud particles, which get bigger and bigger and bigger. You see these massive clouds. And then eventually we see um, cloud droplets become rain droplets. Mm. 
Right. So that's the next stage. Sometimes the thunderstorms can occur when the air is forced upwards by, say, a mountain. So it doesn't naturally have to rise. Sometimes it's forced upwards. And then when we get all these tiny little rain droplets which develop within the cloud, eventually they will become ice if the cloud is sub-zero and a lot of clouds are sub-zero. So you get ice particles forming as well. And as the air continues to feed in and rise up explosively, we call these updrafts, you get more and more ice crystals, uh, rain droplets, and then hail, which start to rub against each other. And it's the rubbing against each other of these rain droplets and, and hailstones or ice particles which create a charge, it's static electricity, to be honest. And that's what creates a charge between the top of the cloud and eventually the bottom of the cloud. So it's like a battery. Okay. And, and so, that creates, so that creates the lightning. But what makes the sound? Because I often wondered how thunder sounds the way that it does. Well, thunder always comes after lightning. And the reason why, as lightning is formed and it's, it's created by this charge between the top of the cloud and the bottom of the cloud, which eventually goes to Earth or goes to another cloud, mm. it heats up the air so rapidly, it's almost explosive. So the temperature of a lightning strike is around 30,000 degrees Celsius. So five times hotter than the surface of the sun. Wow. And that's why you get the crack of, of thunder. And that is basically the air exploding and right and and expanding rapidly because it's been heated up so quickly. Mm. I was in um, Dallas once in Texas and they had a dry lightning storm, which I found quite fascinating. I couldn't quite work out how there was lightning, but no rain. Yes, I mean, we get it here as well. I mean, we've had this summer so far some really amazing, spectacular lightning skies. Um, and the, the clouds are just a lot higher. So maybe there was a little bit of rain, but it could have evaporated mm. within the atmosphere itself. And you can just get lightning strikes anyway, just from clouds just forming and the charge developing. And in fact, the place that gets most lightning is Venezuela. But uh -huh. any moment of the day or night, there's about 2,000 storms occurring somewhere in the world. Wow. And what's the difference between, say, sheet lightning and fault lightning? Because obviously we see more sheet lightning probably in this country and, and in maybe in parts of America where I've been before um, and other parts of hotter countries, it seems to me. I could be wrong, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I am. Um, is fault lightning more of a sort of a hot country phenomenon? No, not necessarily. It just depends where... where... Lightning wants to earth. It wants to get to a point of the path of least resistance. Yes. So it sometimes goes to another cloud if there's a cloud in, in closer vicinity, which has a charge as well. And so normally that's what we see. We see that sort of sheet lightning, the blast of light. But then the fork lightning can come down to a point on Earth. And that's where we see that fork step type of structure. Hmm. And in fact, lightning can also travel through the ground. So you're not even safe if you can't if you don't see it, because sometimes it, it propagates through the ground and can, can come up into the air so it really is important if you do see a, um, a thunderstorm close by you take shelter not under a tree but in a car is safe and in a, in a house is safe but if you are the highest point on the land then you could be struck by lightning and i'd say around five to ten percent of lightning strikes with people are fatal yes they really are i mean it's so unusual that if somebody does get struck by lightning and survives it's usually kind of a, a massive news story but yeah i was going to ask you about the, the standing under a tree thing because a tree presumably can be struck if it's the highest one what if it's not the highest one can you stand under the not the highest tree 
I wouldn't even try and estimate it. I wouldn't play dice with nature at all. And it's other things like playing golf, being on a boat, yeah. flying a car. You, you know, the, the chances are at some point you could be the highest point. So never take risks like that. And the other rule of thumb, um, if you, you count the seconds between uh, the lightning strike and the thunder, if it's five seconds, it's about a mile away. Right. So I would, I'd run a run for a cover. Yes, absolutely right. And then it gets louder the closer it comes, right? So so when you're counting, say, for example, uh, as it gets closer and then the lightning and the thunder come at exactly the same moment, does that mean that uh, they are absolutely as one and they're just literally above the house? Overhead, yeah. Yeah. That's right. It's amazing, isn't it? It's such an interesting thing. I mean, I've been in planes, for example, and looked down above the clouds and seen lightning kind of moving around inside a cloud, which is pretty remarkable. I've also seen those pictures, as I'm sure you have, of a, a lightning strike on the Empire State Building or something like that, which happens on quite a regular basis. But it does seem to me that there's more there's more thunderstorms in, in, in hotter places, more humid places. Is that right? You're absolutely right. Yes, Mike. Because the ingredients involve Finally, heat and right. moisture. <laughs> so, yes. And so, yeah, we do get our fair share of thunderstorms here. But in the tropics, they are inundated mm. with thunderstorms throughout the year. And, you know, if you think about, say, the, the central part of the U.S., you have a feed of incredibly warm and moist air coming up from the Gulf of Mexico, drier air coming from the Rockies. And it's that clash of warm and moist and cold, which creates an explosive situation. You get these incredible supercells, which is more than one thunderstorm, which eventually can create uh, tornadoes, another byproduct of, of a thunderstorm. Oh, is that right? I that, see that I didn't know. Also, I, I was once in uh, at NASA and... Um, Princess, uh, not the Duchess of York, was visiting, right? And it turned out that um, her um, advisors rather unwisely told a group of press guys that her plane had been struck by lightning as it took off from Heathrow, right? No problem, no big deal. It just took off, but it was struck by lightning. A guy at NASA, and and, and of course the press people were saying, oh, it's not a problem, you know, this happens all the time. But one of the guys at NASA said, well, we had a, a fighter jet struck by a bolt of lightning the other week and it crashed and burned. <laughs> so that was our story for the day. But I mean, planes get hit by lightning quite a lot, don't they? Yes, they do. And they conduct that electricity and it tends to fly off them. So, I mean, I think the risk is totally minimal. I, I interviewed a pilot about this recently and it can occasionally cause damage. And I'm not an aviation expert, but certainly you pretty much are safe if you're encased within metal yeah. and you're within it. So like a car. But I wouldn't like to cast any uh, any doubt about that because because you know it, I, these things do happen freak storms yes. do happen and you can be very unlucky right and what about the old rubber shoes thing if you are wearing rubber shoes and you get struck by lightning will you be all right no <laughs> no I, also <laughs> just never wear rubber shoes as a general never rule. wear rubber shoes and in fact in you know if you read stories of people who have survived lightning strikes they can, it can cause a lot of problems, strokes, heart attacks. If you're wearing metal on your, say, rings, or it, it can sort of mm. melt and, and cause real bad problems with mm. your skin, obviously burns as well. So I just don't think you should be anywhere near a thunderstorm if it's in close proximity. Right. However, right. at the same time, it's very rare to get struck by lightning. You have to be very unlucky. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's even rarer than winning the lottery, I think. What about, I'm looking out here from our studios above London Bridge, and I'm seeing... Some fairly, I would say, mid-level clouds, but they're quite white. Um, and is it true that the darker they are, the more likely they are to be thunderclouds? 
Yes, possibly. I mean, it's the densely packed um, water droplets, which eventually create, as I said, that static electricity. It's really the shape of the cloud you need to look at first. And it's the, the cumulus shape, the, sort of the heat that shows that the air is really convective. It's rising and falling, rising, falling and condensing. And today there are some showers dotted around. I don't think we'll get any thunder or lightning, although we have seen that over the last week. And then tomorrow we've got layer cloud, which is totally safe. It just produces rain that's coming in from Northern Ireland. Right. So, yeah, not conducive to thunderstorm conditions over the next few days. OK, well, it's a fascinating uh, subject, as you say, Claire, we could talk about it all day. I mean, have you found that meteorology has become better, has become easier, I suppose, is the question over time because of the scientific kind of advancements? Because I when I lived in America, I was amazed at how accurate they had a thing called AccuWeather and they got the Weather Channel, which I'm sure you know about, which I used to find myself watching. Whenever I checked into a hotel, it'd be like, put the Weather Channel on, that'd be great, you know. And they were so accurate to within about sort of a minute of when they said the rain was going to start falling in any particular area. And in this country, we're not quite so accurate, but I'm assuming that's because our weather is a bit more changeable because it's not such a big landmass. It does depend on the climate and weather conditions. We get weather from every because we're an island yeah. however the met office the uk met office has the most powerful weather computer in the world and the scientists at the met office actually go over to the states and other parts of the of the world to help with forecasting using uh, the the craig computers which are in, absolutely incredibly powerful right. that the issue with thunderstorms is that they are so localized it's very hard to resolve that type of structure within a, a model a, a computer weather computer model mm. however we've come on so far from where we were even 10 years ago and deep convection is something which in fact it's all part of what we call sort of deep learning, artificial, right. artificial intelligence, where computers starting to learn where the flaws are in their forecasts and and realign and, and do better. Right. Because we've had the odd tornado in recent years as well, haven't we? Is our weather kind of changing, would you say? Um, well, our climate is changing, um, which uh, in fact is conducive to far more storms because there's more energy in the atmosphere because the, the air is warmer. Mm. But in fact, for the UK, per square mile, we get as m most tornadoes in the world equivalent to uh, to holland they're just not the prolific ones that we see in the us and obviously the us is a massive landmass whereas the uk is a lot smaller but mm. so we get on average around 33 a year and if you look outside and you do see a thunderstorm you see what we call a funnel cloud extending from the base of the cumulonimbus cloud once it touches the ground then it becomes a tornado. So the tornadoes here can wreak havoc, as they did uh, about 10 years ago in Moseley in mm. Birmingham. There was, it was a huge amount of damage from a tornado. But generally speaking, they're just nice to look at here. Yes. Whereas in the, in the US, they, they kill. They do. They really do. Brilliant stuff. Well, listen, Claire, pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. I think we all feel a lot more educated now about thunderstorms and lightning. Uh, Claire Nazir, uh, who is, of course, a meteorologist, a broadcaster, Channel 5. You can see her on there every day. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.